Welcome to the Wits and Weights podcast, where we discuss getting strong and healthy with strength training and sustainable nutrition. I'm your host, Philip Pape, and in each episode, we examine strategies to help you achieve physical self-mastery through a healthy skepticism of the fitness industry and a commitment to consistent nutrition and training for sustainable results. Welcome to another episode of Wits and Weights. I'm excited today to have Dr. Glenn Livingston on the show, especially because of his incredible work and useful strategies on emotional and binge eating. Dr. Livingston is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm for Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major media outlets like the New York Times, ABC, or CBS Radio, among many others. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating in working with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most importantly was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Glenn, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Been looking forward to it. Uh, Likewise, I think it's going to be a great conversation. And to start off, um, since we are going to explore the topic of overeating and binge eating, what is your personal connection with this, your personal story with overeating? What inspired you to become an expert in the area? Where where do you live, Philip? I live in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, My mother was in Danbury, Connecticut. And what was the name of the store? Oh, there was a deli there. It's, it's right off of Route um, 84, Exit 9. And if you happen to stop there um, and find that they were out of pizza or Pop-Tarts, I was probably there before you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I have, a, I have a very personal connection with overeating. I, um, it, it, I'll try to encapsulate it a little more concisely. But when I was 17 or 18, I figured out that if I worked out hard because I'm 6'4 and just genetically lucky and a little bit muscular, um, if I worked out for a couple hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to, like literally five, 6,000 calories a day and boxes of pizza and boxes of muffins and multiple chocolate bars. Right? If it wasn't nailed down, then it was mine. And um, I thought that was great. It wasn't a problem. It was more like a superpower, like Doug Graham says. And... Um, that worked for me until I was 22 or 23 years old and I was married and I was commuting several hours each way every day to go to graduate school and see patients and take classes. And then I would get home and we'd have to work on the business a little bit. And God forbid my ex-wife wanted to talk to me. It was, um, I, I just didn't have the time to work out. And so I discovered though, that the food had a hold on me, a life of its own. So I kept eating like that. And slowly but surely, I got heavier. Um, and my triglycerides went to well over a thousand. And doctors were yelling at me that, you know, I probably wasn't going to see 30 or 35 if I kept going like this. And their heart attacks up into the line in my family. Wow. And yeah, you know, what, what bothered me the most, though, was that it interfered with my work. Because I'm, I'm from a family of 17 psychotherapists. My mom and my dad and my grandparents and my aunts and my uncle, everybody, my grandmother. Um, And so what was always most important to me was being a really good doctor. And I found that I just couldn't be totally present with my patients. And the, the thing is that 
psychology is not so much of an intellectual, clinical psychology isn't really so much of an intellectual endeavor. I mean, you got to know a lot of stuff, but it's not like people come in and they present you with the puzzle of their life and you say, well, just rotate this here and you're missing this spot here. And they go, brilliant, brilliant, doc. I'll get right on that. That part is actually relatively easy within, you know, you do a little bit of studying within a couple of sessions, you can kind of figure out what's going on with people. What's really hard is getting them to love and trust you enough so that they're willing to think new thoughts and go outside of their comfort zone and do new things. And to do that, you have to lend them your soul. You got to be right there with them. And I wasn't. I was thinking, you know, sitting with a suicidal person thinking, when can I get the next pizza? And I never lost anybody, thank God. But but, um, I wasn't fully there. And that's what bothered me more than anything. And being from the family I was from, I went to very traditional route, and I figured I must have a hole in my heart, a metaphorical hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I tried to love myself thin, for lack of a better phrase, and nurture my inner wounded child. I went on a kind of spiritual journey. I went to, um, you know, doctors and healers and overeaters anonymous, and took medication for a while, and and. I don't regret it because I feel like it enriched me and made me a more compassionate person, made me a deeper person. It's part of who I am today, but it didn't really help with the binge eating. I would get a little better and a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse. Um, And it was up and down in weight, but like gradually up, 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 up. And what really helped in the end was flipping the paradigm. And there were a number of things that happened that caused me to flip the paradigm from love yourself thin to you know, be the alpha dog of your own brand, and you know, kind of, kind of like a tough love approach. What what happened was, my ex wife was traveling for business all the time. She was a focus group moderator, and um, I had this extra time in my hands to start a second career. So, because I didn't commute and we didn't have kids, so I um, started consulting for big companies also a lot of big companies in the food industry. I was on the wrong side of the war. I was like a hidden persuader in advertising research. Um, and I, I regret that I'm trying to make up for it now. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but I saw that what they were doing was throwing billions of dollars to have all these rocket scientists engineer these hyperpalatable yeah. concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and oil and salt. And, and, and it's all aimed at reaching the bliss point in the reptilian brain, stimulating the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied, which creates addiction. You know, and then every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this would be, you never, you can never stop at just one, right? You can never eat just one. That's the food science uh, industry behind that. It's hard. It's hard. They, they actually, but besides the food science, there's the advertising, and people think advertising doesn't affect them, but it affects you more when you don't think it affects you because your sales resistance is down. Mm-hmm. And not only does the food science stimulate the bliss point in the reptilian brain without the nutrition, so you want more and more and more, mm-hmm. but it turns off your ability to know when you're full. It, it, it actually physiologically turns <laughs> off some of the sensors in your body, a lot of them do, to know when you're full. And and they press other evolutionary buttons that you don't even know that you have. Like, like um, you know, when 
when a bag of chips is engineered, it's usually not from a unitary assembly line, usually multiple assembly lines with slightly different flavors, just very slightly different micro differences in flavor because your brain is wired to look for diversity because hmm. a diversity of different flavors should be a diversity of different micronutrients. And so you keep going and going and going when you encounter. So there are lots of things like that that go on that just keep you eating. Um, so I said, that's an external force. The advertising industry, um, they're good at faking us out also. For example, it was working with this food bar manufacturer who shall remain nameless so I don't get sued. And um, the VP kind of hung his head in shame as he was leaving the company and told me, you know, Glenn, the most profitable thing we did was to take the vitamins out of the bar because they were too expensive and we could put the money into the packaging instead. So they made these diverse, multicolored, vibrant um, packages, which looks like the rainbow in nature. Like you're supposed to eat the rainbow because when mm -hmm. you find a diversity of colors, you're also red, red tomatoes, green lettuce, blueberries, you know, yellow carrots, you're eating a diversity of micronutrients. So there are buttons in the reptilian brain that says, go for the rainbow. Um, but in this case, they were pressing those buttons, but taking the nutrients out. And, and so I said to myself, back to your original question, um, these are two very powerful external forces, you know, the advertising industry and the, the big food industry that have nothing to do with the fact that I was in a bad marriage, had nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough where she dropped my eye on my head when I was a baby and her mother dropped her on her head when she was a baby. It, it was nothing to do with my personal psychology. It's just a very powerful external force pressing on the reptilian brain. Furthermore, when I started to study neurology a little bit, and just, just a little, I'm known enough to be dangerous, <laughs> but, but I discovered the reptilian brain doesn't know love. Like if this is the reptilian brain, when it looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I meet with it or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill. <laughs> I, on top of that is the mammalian brain, which says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on your tribe and the people that you love? And then there's a neocortex that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on the person you're trying to become, on your long-term goals, on your fitness, your training, your weight loss, um, your health in general, and who you want to be in the world. So this thing here doesn't know love, yet I'm spending, I must have spent two and a half decades trying to love myself then. So I said, okay, this is more a matter of controlling a bodily organ than solving a psychological problem. What, and which was hard for me to admit as a psychologist from the family that I was in, but it's, it's more a matter of controlling a bodily organ. I already control my testicles and my, my, um, my bladder, right? If, if, if I had to pee really, really badly right now, if my bladder was pressing for me to go pee, I would say, look, I'm talking to Philip. We have an agreement to talk for an hour or so, and I'm going to have to get to you later. We'll just have to hold it out. I don't really have to pee now, so you don't have to worry. Got it. No, I'm not worried. <laughs> <laughs> but see, same thing with your testicles, right? Like if there's a really pretty woman that I see on the beach, I don't go running out to kiss her right away. Um, actually, don't do that. Anyway, because I have a girlfriend and I'm kind of shy anyway. But but you know what I mean? There, there are civilized ways of going about this. And I, I have to credit Jack Trimpey of Rational Recovery, who wrote about this kind of thing for kind of putting this together for me. And I said, well, why can't I control this organ in the reptilian brain that says, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt? It's It's a misfiring of the survival drive stimulated by industry. Why can't I control that the same way? So 
here's what I did. It's a little crazy. It's going to sound less than sensitive. I promise you this whole thing comes together into a system that's very compassionate and loving, um, but it's going to sound a little crazy at first. I decided, and I was not going to take this public. It's just an experiment on my own, that um, I had to know when the reptilian brain was active in order to stop it. So I had to have very clear rules, like a very clear line in the sand. So I knew when this reptilian brain was trying to get me to cross it. So I'd start with something like, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll never have chocolate Monday to Friday, only on a Saturday or Sunday. Because then if I'm at Starbucks on a Wednesday and I hear this voice in my head that says, you worked out hard enough, Glenn. It's going to be no big deal to just start again tomorrow. Start your silly diet tomorrow. Go ahead and have some chocolate. You're not going to gain any weight. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. Here's the crazy part. That's my inner pig. I called my my reptilian Mm -hmm. brain an inner pig. I kind of, you know, fictionalized it. Um, Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, as crude as that sounds, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me a few extra microseconds to make the right choice, which I wish I could say I always did right away, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. But it just, it cleared away the muck. I no longer thought I had some chronic progressive mysterious disease. I didn't think I had some psychological problem that nobody was able to get to. It's just like my reptilian brain was active and now I was waking up So I had to get better at waking up. I had to get better at turning off the lizard brain. We talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. And then I had to adjust the rules so that I found rules that I would and could follow, um, which was easier than I thought it would be because nobody was telling me what to eat. I was deciding myself. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, what if the most important thing is that I make rules that I can follow? What if the most important thing is that I prove to myself that I'm dominant over this stupid bodily organ that's been ruining my life. And then after that, I'll deal with losing weight. Um, yeah. I, so I want to unpack a lot of this because I, I really love the connection you're making. So I, a lot of people think this is a behavioral thing, a psychological thing, right? Like you said, there's some deep way to to solve this with love or, or something else. And I like how you separate the uh, primal from the psychological. It reminds me of a study. I, I, I can't tell you who did it. It wasn't wasn't too many years ago where they had the two groups basically locked in a in a room um, as part of the the study, and one group was asked to eat processed food, and one group was asked to eat more whole foods, um, and uh, they were basically left to their own devices to eat till they were full. And the group eating the processed food ate about 500 calories more a day than the other other yeah. group, which which supports what you're saying because. It, Every single person in that group eating more calories because they have some, you know, emotional or psychological challenge, right. or is right. it, you know, the external force of of making this perfectly delectable, highly palatable food that we just can't can't resist, or we think we can't resist, which then leads to what you're saying is if we're aware of that and if we can name it and we can then um, give ourselves our own rules as opposed to following keto or following this or following that diet, um, I, I think it's a matter. It sounds like it's a matter of self control. It's a matter of um, maybe a little bit of work, right? A little bit of thinking and thought and planning ahead of that, which I really love. And I think people can act on. I mean, that's the key. It's not this years of what do I do? I'm so overwhelmed. Sounds like they can really act on this. Yeah, very simple. Um, and I and I and I, I have been reading your book, Never Binge Again. So I'm going to plug that for people. <laughs> um, where you talk about the food plan, you talk about the food rules, and you do mention this one rule for the one trigger of food. So it sounds like it sounds start, like that's what you're getting start at. With, start with one simple rule. Yeah. What, what happens, 
my understanding is that overeating and particularly binge eating, but overeating in general is a misfiring of the feast and famine response in the reptilian <laughs> brain. It's this, um, it's this emergency response system that, that was used to having evolved in an environment where food was not plentiful. And so when you came up on the harvest or the catch, it would say you better hoard all you can. And what happens is most overeaters are also good dieters. And so they keep themselves in this steady state of feast and famine. Mm. So there is an old nursery experiment that says when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. That's how most people live with their eating. Like they say, well, I'm on plan now. Screw it. I'm totally off plan. I'll start this again. And you, you want to beat that. And the way that you start to beat that is don't set the bar too high. Come up with one simple practical thing that you could and would do that doesn't feel too burdensome so that mm -hmm. you can experience success. I'll always put my fork down between bites. I'll never eat after seven o'clock. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll never go back for a second. Some, something you could and would do that would make a really big difference, but it's not, it's not going to cause you to lose all the weight in 30 days. It's not going to totally fix all your health problems. It's just going to get you back into control and prove that you can do this thing. So, so going on that example, let's say alcohol is your problem. Just, mm -hmm. just for an example, you drink, you drink too many drinks on the weekend. Would, would that first step be to have fewer drinks or would it to be have none? I mean, which, which how, I don't want to say extreme do we go, but where does the rule make sense? So, so I, I prefer when it comes to drugs and alcohol that people use um, rational recovery or, um, you know, th those specific techniques. Because first of all, he's been developing this for 20 years specific to drugs and alcohol. And um, it tends to work better. My, my system is more forgiving. In other words, people tend to make more mistakes with food. And you can't really afford to make mistakes with drugs and alcohol. You might get behind the will of car and kill or sure. name someone. Um, that said, people do use this sometimes for uh, moderating their alcohol. And, um, you know, that yeah, yeah. And I, and I wasn't referring just so everybody knows I'm not referring to alcoholism specifically. I'm just talking about the average client that might yeah. drink a little bit on much on the weekends. So, so <laughs> what typically happens with alcohol and food is that alcohol is a disinhibitor. So it makes it harder mm -hmm. to follow the other rules. I and what I, right. what I find is that with women, they'll tell me that if they have more than one drink, um, at a meal that they aren't able to follow their rules. And men will tell me that if they have more than two drinks at a meal, they're not able to follow their rules. <laughs> and so I say, well, why don't you make a rule that says, I'll just have one drink at a meal or yeah, accept okay. two drinks at a meal. Like and, and yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of rules, right. Some people might listen to this immediately and I'm sure you get, you've always gotten this reaction that rules are themselves restrictive and maybe cause people to, to binge. I see the value in planning ahead. Um, mainly to avoid making decisions in the moment. At least that's the, the the value I see in rules is having guidelines to avoid decisions or, you know, spur of the moment decisions. So what would you say to those who think rules are overly restrictive or there's a danger in distinguishing good from bad when it comes to foods? So I, I have a lot of thoughts about that. And there is a whole philosophy of overcoming overeating that says that um, making rules makes you feel too rebellious and the cause of every binge is a restriction, even a mental restriction. Um, and I will say that it's possible to make rules that over restrict your food and you don't want to do that. Um, so I think of rules kind of like a good sharp kitchen knife. You can use them to chop vegetables or you can use them to kill your neighbor um, and you shouldn't use them to kill your neighbor. Kill your or, neighbor. Right. Yeah. You, you could be, you could also be self-destructive with it. Um, there. The idea of just learning to eat more mindfully 
is important. People eat less when they eat mindfully. There's some studies that say you absorb, absorb more nutrition. If you eat mindfully, it's good to eat mindfully. But relying on that solely as a mechanism of overcoming overeating, I think is a mistake. The people that I talk to who have more or less done that, they still complain that they're not eating healthy enough. They would like to be eating healthier, but they're scared to to draw the line between healthy and unhealthy foods. Mm. And I'll say, well, you know, do you know that there's flavored cardboard in the food system? Like there's like if you've seen some of the things these companies do, you wouldn't be so and at some point you have to stand up and say, I opt out. That is a bad food. That is an unhealthy food. Mm-hmm. I choose to eat healthier foods. And I'm not saying you can't indulge in processed food sometimes. Most of my clients, two out of three of them, they wind up making rules to moderate the food. Like I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'll have no more than one bag of chips and not more than you know every two days. So m- most people, that's what they do. But um, in the absence of rules, I don't really see how... You can work it out to be mindful all the time. We don't live in a world where you can be mindful all the time. It's kind of like driving. Um, when I'm driving around town, I'm mindful. I'm um, I'm daydreaming a little bit also. I'm maybe listening to some music or a podcast or something like that. Um, but I stop at the red lights. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that the red lights are there because there could be a guy coming the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, the, those those rules protect me and they actually expand my freedom. They don't contract my freedom. They make it possible for my radius of locomotion to go farther. Um, the other thing about that statement that creating rules is too much of a mental restriction, it's based upon the idea that it's going to stimulate your inner, inner rebel. And it's true that it will. It, it will make you feel rebellious. You make a rule that says, I will not have, never have chocolate on the week during the week again. Watch yourself every time you go into a Starbucks. There's going to be this little voice in your head that says, oh, God, my God, give me the chocolate. You have to be mm-hmm. kidding me, right? And you're going to um, see the chocolate more than you've ever seen it before, right? Yeah, for, for a while, yeah. for a while. Mm-hmm. A- after a certain period of time, you go through a- an extinction protocol and your reptilian brain doesn't jump at that anymore because... The brain is very efficient. It does not want to waste energy. So when it recognizes that this is a craving you never get into, it stops It stops the craving. We don't crave things that we're never going to have. It just... Oh, I, it, yeah. And it I takes, love that concept, the, the extinction protocol, uh, which sounds like a habit. I mean, that's what I would turn it into. Well, is, well there's is, a lot of research into yeah, it. it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It takes 30 exposures or so to the to the offending stimulus um, and a couple of little bursts of cravings. Like people think it's just going to go straight down like this, but it actually goes through a honeymoon period. Then you get some significant cravings, then it goes down, then you get a little craving and and then it just kind of trails away. Um, I have also the point that I never eat chocolate. I don't even have a rule about it. I just became someone who doesn't eat chocolate and I don't, I don't crave it. I don't think about it. Mm -hmm. I just, um, just, I'm just someone who doesn't eat chocolate. But what I was going to say is that the essence of recovering from overeating is making the decision to move your important food decisions from emotions, whims, and impulses to your intellect. Now, rebelliousness is just another emotion. So you could feel angry, you could feel depressed, you could feel lonely, you could feel anxious. You don't have to overeat because of those feelings. You can sever the link. You're going to have those feelings. But you can sever the link between those feelings and overeating, just like a really good fireplace severs the link between the fire and burning down the house, right? 
You, the fire can keep burning. You can still have all the emotions in the world, but it doesn't have to get out of the fireplace. It doesn't have to burn down the house. Mm-hmm. You can be as rebellious. You can feel as rebellious as you want to, but if you don't eat chocolate on a weekday, then you don't eat chocolate on a weekday. So I don't see it as any different than that. And I, I really see the ultimate goal is learning to control your important food decisions with your intellect rather than your emotions and impulses. Uh, yeah. So controlling with your intellect would then probably um, go counter to some of the old saying, you know, there's an adage, just eat everything in moderation, for example. You hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what they'll say is eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time. For Things that have not established themselves as too addictive a pattern, you could do that. But for the things that are too addictive for you, um, it's going to be difficult because, first of all, the cravings are very, very strong. Um, They're artificially inflated by food industry, but they're very, very strong as a matter of habit. And secondly, when you say eat well 90% of the time and indulge yourself 10% of the time, you don't have a vehicle for deciding which is the 90% and which is the 10%. So you're forcing yourself into a situation where you have to make food decisions all day long. If I say, if I say I'm just going to have chocolate 10% of the time, it's great in theory as a guideline, but every time I walk into Starbucks or any place that there's a chocolate bar, I have to make another chocolate decision. And willpower is the ability to make good decisions. Unfortunately, that ability is not like a genetic given where some people have it or they mm-hmm. don't. It's more like gas in the tank and you wear it down all day long as you make decisions, which is the reason that your decisions are better in the morning than they are in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you create a rule that says I'll only have chocolate on a weekday or I'll only have chocolate on a weekend, then I've made all of my chocolate decisions during the week. I don't have to burn my willpower all week long. Hey, this is Philip Pape, letting you know that applications are now open for one-on-one coaching. If you're a busy working professional who has tried dieting and exercising for years with little in the way of results, and you want to lose fat, get lean, or feel confident in your body without excessive dieting, cardio, or restrictions, just go to witsandweights.com slash coaching to apply. Now, how does this this tie into people who are tracking, right? So a lot of my clients, they track because that's one way to learn about intake when we're trying to go for a specific goal, you know, generally fat loss goal, but it could be a a muscle building goal. I have clients and myself who need to eat a lot of calories to go the other direction. Um, The tracking itself is is somewhat of a structure in that going into each day, you know, there's a limit uh, on the calories, right? Uh But it still leaves you open to making decisions potentially in the moment uh, and could be destructive if those decisions are of things that you just can't help but want to eat more of. What do you think of that? Yeah. You know, I, I know a woman who was traveling and her business required her to eat at a restaurant three times a day for three months. And the way she worked it out was to never step foot in a restaurant unless she'd written down and tracked exactly what she's going to have beforehand. So she kept herself out of the environment of temptation unless all of her decisions were made. Um, and so the tracking uh, it, the tracking was a willpower preservative. That mm-hmm. she And she was perfectly fine. She was perfectly mm-hmm. fine like that. Um, if you have a rule that you write down your calories or macros or nutrients before you eat them, it inserts a pause between stimulus and response, and it gives you a little bit more control. And it at least forces you to make the decision before 
your taste buds are stimulated and you're right in front of all the smells and everything like that. So it kind of depends how you use it. Some people use it after eating um, and that mm-hmm. gives them a sense of control and help, help them with the decision-making, but it doesn't obviate the need for decision-making in the first <clears throat> place. So mm-hmm. it, it's a good tool. Um, people sometimes get tired of tracking. And so there yep. are other tools you can use. Yes. Also. Yeah, that, that happens for sure. And, I, and, and the, the example you made about pre-logging, that, that's the term I use, has been helpful to people. I've seen it work a lot where things have maybe lately been going out of control on the weekends and all of a sudden you, you're just not sure how you're going to stay there. And we say, okay, tomorrow for tomorrow, I want you to think about everything you're going to eat, pre-log it in your app. And that, and then execute the plan, and it, and that usually works for a lot of people. So it's a great right. advice. And you, and you think about it like, um, you know, there's general Glenn that plans it all out, and then there's private Glenn that does, does the execution. <laughs> Following orders. Yeah, yeah. Your, yours is not to question why yours yeah. is but to do or die, right? Yeah, and, and actually, we apply the same thing to training. You know, plan out your sets, your reps, your exercises, and then go in and execute, and then you know you're gonna. That's what you're gonna I do. I love it. I love it. Um, so uh, I, again, I've been reading your book, and there was a quote in there, um, and it's related somewhat to some things we've touched on already, you said, quote, you must authoritatively declare your food plan as 100% perfect, or you're not committing to anything at all. Um, and then you expound on pre the pre and post binging context. And we just touched on the pre, you know, doing things ahead of time. But can you elaborate on that philosophy of perfection? Yeah, most people think that perfectionism is a bad thing. And that we have to strive for progress and not for perfection. Um, That's true and it's not true. It's only true in context. Um, If you made a mistake, then beating yourself up and saying, well, if I'm not perfect, then I'm nothing and I'm I'm pathetic. I can't possibly do this. Your pig pig is going to jump in and say, therefore, you might as well just binge, 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 binge. At least till the end of the day, you can start again tomorrow, right? Um, So after you've made a mistake, you, um, you need to say, look, I'm human. I was practicing a food plan. Now it's time for the big leagues. Let's see. I missed the bullseye by how much and in what direction so that I know how to make adjustments and aim again. And then I forgive myself. It's just like if I accidentally touch a hot stove, I don't want to say, oh my God, you're a pathetic hot stove toucher. You might as well put your whole hand down on the stove and and just burn the whole thing off because you can't even do this, right? Or if you chip a tooth, you don't go get a hammer and bang the rest of them out. Um, You have to forgive yourself with dignity. However, when you're aiming at the bullseye, an Olympic archer who only hits the bullseye 35 or 40% of the time, but when Olympic archers aiming at the bullseye before they loose the arrow, they see the arrow going in with perfection. They kind of have to be one with the target. They're not saying, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't, I'll do the best I can. F that. No, I'm going to hit the target because I, I see the arrow. I'm, I am one with that goal. Um, you commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. By committing with perfection, you prevent your pig from draining your energy with doubt and insecurity. You purge your mind of doubt and insecurity. You claim the target and you commit with perfection and do everything you can to hit it. Um, yeah, that, so you commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. Your pig will do exactly the opposite. Your pig will say, just try the best you can, which just means you'll try for a little while so you don't feel like it anymore. Um, and then if you miss it, it'll say, oh, you're an idiot. You obviously can't do this. Just shoot the rest of the arrows into the audience. We want to do the opposite of that. So perfectionism is being used anyway, no matter how you slice it. So let's let us harness the energy and use it as a commitment tool 
not as a forgiveness and analysis tool. As a berating tool. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's, that's really good. Um, and, and I think again, you know, I, I'm a coach and, and a lot of times people need that boost ahead of time. And I try not to say, Hey, just do your best. It's more, this is our plan. Let's go get it. Let's, let's execute to the plan. And then afterward, uh, you didn't make the plan. Okay. It's right. a new day. Let's, let's right. start again. Yeah. So I just wanted to clarify that because I know, you know, that could be a controversial concept to people um, with the perfectionism. So uh, let's, let's say someone's not trying to lose weight. I was just curious if you, on your take on this. Someone is maybe in a maintenance phase or building phase or trying to gain weight. Cause I know probably 90% plus what you talk about is, is about losing weight. Um, would you take any different approach in that scenario in terms of managing overeating or binge eating? We wouldn't take an approach in terms of the structure reminder techniques that we use. However, the rules are different. We usually have anti-restriction rules, you know, like I will, I will always eat 600 calories before 11 a.m. or I will have no less and no more than three meals per day and never less than X number of calories per meal. Mm-hmm. We'll have anti-restriction rules in place to keep the calories up. Um yeah. Anti-restriction. Okay. I, I was, I was wondering about that. I was thinking that exact same thing because if it's three o'clock and I haven't hit, you know, 2,500 calories, man, the rest of the day is going to be really tough to yeah. try to get you know, that in. Yeah. Sometimes we have bodybuilders yeah. who are in a gaining phase yeah. and they're, yeah. And then you, and then you're prone to maybe scarfing on processed food on purpose. And that could be an issue over time. Um, you know, just to get the calories in. I was curious about that. So, uh, you talk about cravings, um, I think language is important. Is there a difference between hunger and cravings? Um, I believe that most of our hungry and full meters have been broken by industry, Um, especially if you're binge eating or like seriously out of control, but even if you're just overeating a little beyond your own best judgment. And the traditional approach is to help you um, become more in tune with your hunger and fullness so that you can eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, which I think is a good guideline, but I, I don't think it's enforceable via these never binge again methods because I don't think we have a true sense of being hungry and full. I mm-hmm. think it's it's distorted from from industry. Um, that says there is a, that said there is a difference between a craving and true hunger. I think you feel true hunger kind of in the back of your throat. Um, true hunger will make the meal taste better. Like you'll know if you really were hungry, hungry because hunger is the best sauce. Um, if you're really hungry, you'll be happy with fruit and vegetables. Um, if you're not so, if you if it's more of a craving, it's got to be the chocolate bar or the Doritos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a difference, but I don't rely on that difference to help people mm-hmm. overcome overeating. Okay, but it sounds like if you if you asked yourself, would I would I eat this bowl of celery? And the answer is no, you're probably not hungry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Probably. I get it. Um, so what up, have you dealt with? I'm sure you have uh, a client or situation that was just very, very challenging. Someone who had, you know, maybe a lot to surmount um, and had to pull out all these tools and strategies and help them overcome their personal sticking points. The hardest thing we have to deal with is people hiding. There are two things. Okay. People hide and they fall in love with their emotions. There, there's so much emphasis on emotions and overeating in our culture that people think they have to solve their emotional problems. And I, like, I just had a session with a client and the whole session, she was crying and telling me it's so frustrating. And I kept saying, but, but what do you want? What, what what do you want to accomplish? Um, If people will do the work, if they're like pick a very specific 
goal and then analyze. I guess we didn't really talk about that one. The, the pig will, once you have a rule in place, the pig will usually squeal in such a way that sounds true. It's like a half truth and a bigger lie to convince you to indulge in the craving. So for example, the one I used before, when the pig says, you know, you worked out hard enough, it's going to be just as easy for you to start your diet again tomorrow. Go ahead and have the chocolate back bar now. Well, it's true that I worked out hard enough and if I just had one bar that I probably wouldn't gain weight, but it's never just a bar. It really wasn't for me. Chocolate was my thing and it would lead to, you know, pizza and everything else. Secondly, the way that the brain works, the principle of neuroplasticity says that if I have a craving and I indulge it today, that craving is going to be stronger tomorrow, as will the thought that that came right before the indulgence. So the thought, mm-hmm. just start tomorrow, is going to be more likely to occur tomorrow with a stronger craving. Mm-hmm. So it's not just as easy to start tomorrow. <clears throat> it's harder. I can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. If you're in a hole, stop digging. So what you want to do is, is disempower those irrational thoughts. Um, that's the work of what we do. There's, there's more to it because there are ways to get out of the reptilian brain and into your higher brain to kind of calm down and think rationally. Um, but that's the essence of what we do. The biggest problem I have is that people won't do it. Um, they'll, you know, they'll they'll say, you know, "I just have to solve these emotional problems," or they won't show up for a session, or you know, they won't do the little assignments that we give them. That's that's the biggest problem I have. Not really that the techniques themselves don't work, but that you need a stronger one to help someone who's five hundred pounds than you do to help someone who's two hundred pounds. Sure. Um, yeah. S- same techniques work. So it's 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 not the aware people know what to do they just don't do it it sounds like it's an accountability and a momentum thing they're, they're, the pig talks them out of it may mm-hmm. I say a little bit more about emotional yeah, eating please go ahead okay the paradigm we have in our culture is the belief that I have these uncomfortable emotions and I escape from them with overeating right and this is not really my hands are not really the best analogy but it's like it's this one way relationship we're eating to quote unquote numb out um. And it's true that when you overload the digestive system, the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions. So there is a kind of numbing anesthetic effect on the feelings when you overeat. That's true. However, several other things are also true. First of all, the things we overeat are not typically broccoli. It's more likely to be these concentrations of calories and starch and sugar and these hyperpalatable things, which we didn't have in the savannah. We didn't have chocolate bars and Doritos on mm-hmm. the savannah, right? Um, and these artificial concentrations of pleasure uh, are really akin to drugs. I mean, they're legal and I'm not advocating that, you know, the manufacturers we put in jail or anything like that, but really, how is it that much different? It's an artificial concentration of, of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. And we get more and more and more involved with it. Um, so when you're going to the chocolate bar or the potato chips or the pizza or the pasta, you're kind of sort of going to a drug. And so there's this piece of us that wants to get high with food, right? It's, this is, the stuff is not just numbing out. Uh, do, do you ever go to the dentist and he says, I'm sorry, I'm out of Novocaine. Could I inject you with some potato chips instead? Right? Because the potato chips have more than just a numbing effect. We're going after something else. There's an even more important difference though. It's not just a one-way relationship. It goes both ways. Let's take anxiety. A lot of people say, I'm too anxious to fall asleep without overeating. A lot of people say they can't fall asleep without eating something heavy. Mm. And you know, they'll, they'll cite serotonin-rich 
things, you know, potatoes, pastas, they'll be eating very heavy, hard to digest serotonin producing things. <laughs> and so it seems to make sense. However, when you look at anxiety, it's got several physiological correlates. Your blood pressure goes up a little bit. You start to perspire. Your respiration goes up. Your heartbeat goes up a little. Your galvanic skin response goes up a little bit. These are all very measurable things. Now, if you look at a group of animals and you you give them a sugar reward or a starch reward when their um, heart rate goes up or their blood pressure is up or any of those other. Um, there's a study with baboons, for example, where every time their blood pressure was up a little bit, we reinforce them with sugar. Turns out that those baboons, while at the moment they're having sugar, the, the blood pressure goes down a little bit. Hmm. Overall, their blood pressure goes up. That whole group goes up. And so you could infer that perhaps the anxiety is raised overall. Their body is learning to produce those experiences more because of the sugar reward, because those experiences led to a sugar reward. Mm -hmm. So you think that you're getting yourself back to sleep by doing this, but really what you're doing is creating progressively more anxiety. So what if the yeah, what if the inability to sleep is actually caused by the rewards that you're giving it? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's it sounds complicated, but it also in a way simplifies everything you said before in that why don't we just focus on what we do have control over, focus on that pig and focus on um planning ahead. Uh I, I like that concept. So what if um a lot of my a lot of my clients face the temptation on the weekends, right? This is a pretty common approach. Um, and they might describe it as emotional eating in many cases. And I don't know, I don't know if it is or not, you know, in terms of the technical definition you were describing. Um, but it's, it's extremely common, right? Cause the routine is broken on the weekends. Often for people, they have the social events, they go out, they travel, they're hanging out with family and so on. Um, what would you say is maybe the, the big go-to approach or strategy for that case? Since it probably affects a lot of people. I, I plan to have more on the weekends, but, but plan it out. Right. Okay. So, Higher calories yeah. on the weekends. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe a little less every during during the weekend, a little more on the weekend. Okay. Yeah. And that's and that's effectively that that's something you write down as a plan. So that's one thing we didn't talk about. When you come up with this food plan, it's you actually write down the rules for yourself. Yeah. So maybe maybe it would say I will never have bread on a weekday again, and no more than two slices a day on the weekend. That, that would just be an example. And then how do people hold themselves to that besides having written it down? Or is that, is that the extent of it? Is that usually enough for people? Well, well okay. So wh whenever you create a rule, now you know that a pig squeal, and you don't have to call it a pig, you can call it your food mm -hmm. monster, but a squeal is any thought-filling impulse or image which suggests that you're going to break the rule either now or in the future. So you're kind of separating your thoughts into two. There's you, and then there's the pig uh, or your food monster. And so if you say, I will never have more than two slices on uh, slices of bread on the weekends, and I will never have it during the week, your pig is going to squeal all the time saying at first, saying, oh boy, you can have this, you know, forget about it, or Wednesday's like Saturday. You first recognize that that's what's going on, that this is not you, this is a destructive thought. By your definition, this is a destructive thought of your pig. Okay. Now what you want to do is move the battleground. What's happened is your reptilian brain is active. You're, you probably have activated your sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our nervous system that gets us ready for immediate action. 
you know, like if a hungry bear is chasing you, it gets you all revved up so you can take immediate action for your survival. Your brain is misperceiving there to be in an emergency. You just got to have that extra piece of bread or you're going to die. That's that's literally what the brain is thinking. So now you know that it's active. You want to step into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part that says it's okay to rest and digest and strategize and plan for the future. So one way you can do that once you realize that it's active is to take what we call a 7-Eleven breath, where you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11. You do that a couple of times. The reason that works is that if we were in a true emergency, if we're being chased by a hungry bear, we'd be breathing as fast as we can. We wouldn't have time to breathe out for, you know, 25, 30% longer than we breathe in. And so the brain says, okay, there must not be an emergency here. So it starts to calm down. Once you've done that, you can further move from the reptilian brain to the neocortex by writing down specifically what the pig is saying. Just the act of writing it down, even if you can't disempower it, will take you from the reptilian brain to the neocortex because writing is an upper brain experience Mm -hmm. and binging is a lower brain experience. So now you write down, just start tomorrow. It's no big deal, right? Then you look at the squeal. You take another couple of 7-Eleven breaths. You look at the squeal and you say, how is the pig wrong? How is it lying to me? Um, Well, it's not easy. It's all all the things we said before. It's not as easy Mm -hmm. to start tomorrow because X, Y, Z. You take another couple of 7-Eleven breaths and you say, why would I be a happier, better person if I kept the pig in the cage? Why would I be a happier, better person if I don't have the chocolate bar now? And maybe that has to do with feeling um, an integrity that I'm walking the walk in the world or, you know, that I can climb to the top of mountains as a tall, thin man or, mm-hmm. you know, all of the reasons I have for the rules in the first mm-hmm. place. You kind of come back to your big why. And then you take a breath out. You should feel calmer. The last thing you want to do is ask yourself, is there any genuine physical or emotional need that I need to fulfill? Usually it's physical. Often these cravings are louder and more appealing when you're hungry or tired. So ask yourself, how do you take care of that? For chocolate, for me, I eventually really got off of chocolate, not just with the rule, but you know, the rule gave me the power to recognize when this was happening, and it would experiment with a lot of different things that I could eat. When I realized that um, kale, kale juice, celery, and bananas together seemed to it doesn't didn't give me the same feeling. I didn't get high with it the same way I got high with food, but I felt content, like it scratched mm-hmm. the itch, and it was taking care of some genuine physiological need. So that whole routine together would um, is what gave me the power to never have chocolate. That's that's how it happened. This is this is gold, Glenn. I love this. I'm gonna have to rewatch this a few, a few times because there's so much great stuff in there. Going from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic. Uh, using the 7-Eleven technique, right? Sounds like it takes us out of the, I don't know if it's the fight or flight, that's the colloquialism. That yeah, we yeah, use, Fe- feast uh, or famine. Feast yeah, or feast famine. or famine. Yeah. Um, to telling our brain that no, we're not in this emergency situation. And then the having substitutions. I know w- one substitution where, you know, hunger is disguised or thirst is disguised as hunger and you may just need to drink could could often work for people, but you found a specific food that maybe scratched the itch, but without all the other um, side effects and it's not something you crave. So I I just, I love that whole um, story as well as the steps. And I think people are going to be able to take a lot from that. So thanks. Um, I I did want to ask more of a philosophical question for you. Is there something 
with everything you've learned that you wish you had learned earlier in life? I wish I learned it all earlier in life, but um, <laughs> yeah. it, it's just not as complicated as it's as it sounds. It's um, you know, you, I still thoroughly believe in psychology as a mechanism for soul enrichment, solving other problems mm. in life. I wish that I didn't spend all those years looking for psychological solutions to overeating because I it damaged my body a lot in the process. Um, I suffered a lot in ways that I didn't have to. Um, the other thing that happens when you start to have control like this is that the food obsession goes away because the pig doesn't crave things that it's never going to have. Mm -hmm. And it also will stop craving things that you don't do except for a very specific context. Like if you only have bread in a restaurant on the weekend, you'll find that the pig stops craving bread during the week. Mostly Mm -hmm. like one out of three people will have to give up bread altogether, but, Mm -hmm. but mostly you'll find that it stops craving bread during the week. And you know, I have to tell you that I'm really happy to live in a relatively thin and healthy body. I am infinitely happier that I can think about other things besides food all day long. Because hmm. um, I, I was always thinking, when is the next meal? When's the next pizza? How am I going to control myself? How am I going to make up for it? Do I go to the gym for, you know, three hours tomorrow? How am I going to hide the evidence? It's just, it was a nightmare. All the obsessing about it was a nightmare. And um, if I just knew that I could start with one simple rule and I didn't have to go through all this deep soul searching um, to to fix this, I think my life would have been a lot better. Mm. Sometimes I think if I had a if I had a time machine, I can go back and meet myself when I was nine years old. What would I say? I'd say, Glenn, step away from the pop tarts. Just step away from the pop tarts. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at the same time, though, right? Like if we hadn't gone through that experience, you wouldn't have actually yeah. learned what you have now. We know that, but yeah. it's fun to, to hypothesize. Um, so the takeaway there is it's 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 a lot simpler than we might make it out to be. Maybe we there are scapegoats we use to try to link this whole thing to something more complex regarding emotion, emotion psychology, um, which is which is good that we that we don't have to do that. Especially someone like me who doesn't have a background in that. I just want to help people, you know, succeed in life and get the results they want to get. So it's very helpful. Um, before we get to the last question, is there anything you wish I would have asked you? And if so, what's your answer? You, you did a really good job. Um, I wish you would have asked me, what do you think about people who are frightened that setting up these rules will restrict their freedom? And what I would have said is, um, there are two famous quotes, one from Jim Rohn that said, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. The other was from Peter McWilliams, who said, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And so to really get what you want, you really do need discipline. And I think about discipline as creating freedom. I think that it's it's only because of the discipline of the engineers who put my car together that I can turn my wheel 30 degrees to the right and the wheels actually turn 30 degrees to the right. And I can drive all over the state if I want to, although not in Florida this week because of the hurricane. But, but um, or, or uh, I wanted to be a jazz pianist when I was younger. And it was only because of the discipline of knowing the skills and practicing the skills that I was ever able to express my soul in an improvised way, right? Um, discipline creates freedom. It doesn't restrict your freedom. So that's what I'd say about that. Wonderful. I, and I totally agree with that. As an engineer, too, and you throwing in an, an engineering analogy, I can uh, definitely oh. appreciate that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't um, know. Yeah. So 
All right. Final question. Where can listeners get a free copy of your book that we've been talking about? The fantastic book, Never uh, Binge Again. And where can they learn more about you? Both in the same place at neverbingeagain.com. Easy enough. If you click on the big red button, I'll give you three things. One is a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. If you want the Audible or the paperback, there's a charge, a reasonable charge, but there's a charge. Um, when you do it, though, when you sign up for that reader bonus list to get the free copy, you will also get several other things. One of which is a set of recordings that shows how this crazy psychologist coaches people through um, feeling hopeless and powerless and confused and despairing to feeling excited and optimistic and confident that they can do this in just one session. So recorded a whole bunch of that. This is all free. And that's just so that you don't think I'm too crazy. And why does Philip have a psychologist with a pig inside him on on, on the call? (laughs) And then you'll also get a um, a set of food plan starter templates. Um, Personally, I'm a whole foods plant-based person, but we work with people across all dietary philosophies. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of keto people. We've got point counters, calorie counters, macrobiotic, vegan, carnivores. Um, and we thought through a set of starter templates you could use. You need to customize them and own them for themselves. These are not diets. I'm not a medical professional. I don't have a you know nutritionist license or a dietitian's license. Um, and more importantly, we found that to overcome overeating, you really have to make your own rules. But um, yeah, three things at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button, including a free copy of the book. Wonderful. I will make sure those links are in the show notes. I've already been a recipient of the resources myself. And I, I love the uh, the regular emails that come in too with clips that are that I think are super helpful to people. Um, so Dr. Glenn Livingston, this has been enlightening. It's also been very educational to me and the listeners, I'm sure. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and having this conversation. I really enjoyed it, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoy the podcast, let me know by leaving a five-star review in Apple Podcasts and telling others about the show. Thanks again for joining me, Philip Pape, in this episode of Wits and Weights. I'll see you next time and stay strong. Hey, before you go, I want to let you know about a free resource I have. They are free guides on everything from fat loss to eating out to building muscle to managing hunger to figuring out the best macros for you and more being added all the time. You want to get the most out of these podcasts and your time to look and feel your best. And these free guides will give you a quick and easy way to know what to do. If you want to get your hands on these completely free guides, you can head over to witsandweights.com slash free. That's witsandweights.com slash free to get your free guides and level up your results today.